Happy Valentine's Day and welcome to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. I'm your host, Gil Manser, and today's guest is Sonoma State's newest professor of creative writing, Stefan Kiesbu, with his latest novel, The Staked Plains. Born on the German coast of the Baltic Sea, doesn't that sound picturesque? Stefan studied drama and worked in radio before starting a degree in American Studies, English, and Comparative Literature at Berlin's Free University. Well, a scholarship brought him to Buffalo, New York, and he received an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan. Stefan's first book, Next Door Lived a Girl, won the Low Fidelity Press Novella Award. His second novel, Your House is on Fire, Your Children All Gone, was a top ten pick on Oprah Magazine, made Entertainment Weekly's must-read list. His next two books, Knife, Fork, Scissors, and Flame, which has been translated, and Vanishing Point were written in German, and earned Stefan the accolade from De Weidt, as he is the inventor of the modern German Gothic novel. We welcome Stefan with his newest novel, The Stake Plains, which de- debuted in December 2015. Thank you for coming to Word by Word. Thank you so much for having me here. When I heard you read from The Stake Plains at the Cloverdale Center for the Arts, I learned that the desiccated landscape of eastern New Mexico plays a major role in the book. Can you tell our listeners how you and your wife came to live there? Yeah, we were living in Long Beach, California at the time, and I applied for academic jobs. And I I got into the, into the pool of candidates um, at Eastern New Mexico University and uh, had a campus interview there and got offered the job. And so we moved our things and dogs to New Mexico. Instead of describing it, why don't I have you read a bit about what you wrote mm-hmm. about uh, the little town? Now, you called the town Carosa, uh-huh. which is a non-existent place, of course. Yeah. But it is a definite uh, geographic locale. Yeah, it is. Um while it's entirely fiction and all the people in the book don't exist uh, in that town, the general layout of the town is somewhat recognizable. Um, yeah. In Kerosa, there was no shade. There were no mountains, no hills. There was no river. These were the eastern high plains, the staked plains. And the joke Jenny heard more than once during her first months was that if your dog ran away, you could see him run for three straight days. Carosa claimed to have 17,000 people, but 6,000 of them were students at the college, and during the summer they left. The courthouse was the most prominent building, a bland art deco block set in the middle of what was now a large parking lot. This was the main square, and around its edges a consignment store, a fitness center, and a saddle maker hung on for dear life. There was an Italian restaurant and a coffee and sandwich shop. There was the post office, the chamber of commerce, two insurance agents. Farther down the road, on the way out of town, was the best Mexican restaurant set in a tire shop. 
Carl and Jenny got their tires rotated while eating huevos rancheros, and the waitress rang them up for both. Kerosa had a donut shop, a steakhouse, a diner, a local taco chain, and a local fast food joint. McDonald's outdid Burger King. You could join a Christian fitness club and get Christian massages. It had two Christian barber shops and a Christian motorcycle club. Kerosa had sixty-two churches. The tap water turned children's teeth brown, Jenny had been told, and everyone she knew got their drinking water from a purifying station in town. It was cheap and didn't smell. The smell of the tap water was intermittent and nauseating, and if it came directly from the ground beneath the dairy farm surrounding the town, the wind carried the sickening smell into the streets and into the houses. Kerosa had no rain, but it had enough wind. It hardly ever let up. So this is based a bit on um, Portales. Is that the town you were in? A little bit, a tiny, tiny, tiny little tiny, bit. Tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny little. Some part of yeah. how far in the distance from there, but with the McDonald's. Yeah, and the tire shop is actually really true. Uh, the the best Mexican restaurant is this tiny, tiny, tiny little thing, and uh, it's it's very low key, very sort of basic. But the food is excellent, and you can have your tires rotated and eat and get the bill for all of right. it. The town is famous in the internet for uh, its peanut. Yes. Plant, I guess. Yeah. Manufacturing plant. You don't manufacture peanuts, but you process, I guess. This. Yeah, they process them, and they have been in the news because there was first a salmonella outbreak, right. and then it was shut down and then reopened and shut down and sold. So it's been on and off for a while. Mm -hmm. And then the other big thing is that what your town, your Carosa, is, is basically dying on the vine, as we say. Even faster than that, the cattle are dying and have to be sold off because the water, the drought, has just made things that are bad even worse. Yeah, and the dairy farms around town are really, A, they smell bad, and they really do smell bad, but um, they're also sucking the whole area dry. Um, I was told repeatedly by people who've been living there for a long time that in the 70s still, in certain areas you had standing waters, mm -hmm. um, there's this really great archaeological site, the Blackwater Draw right, site. Right, right. And well, often there was... The, excuse me. They have found the Clovis points, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And hints of the Clovis man. Never a bone, but Clovis man was there, and so it's it's the oldest... It was his manufacturing site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to speak, and hunting ground. Um, and yeah, and there were areas still where water pooled, there was running water, and all that is gone. And strangely enough, and that was really funny because we had just come from California, a lot of California cattle uh, dairy farmers came actually to New Mexico uh, in the 60s and 70s because New Mexico promised them, basically, you can suck us dry. Come over, we don't put any restrictions on you, just come over and settle here, and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. Which helped the economy for the short term, but the there's this thing called the water table, which keeps lowering and lowering and yeah. lowering under the plane. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's really bad when we got there. Uh, the drought had been going for three years, and everything was just completely dry. Well, you have created a very uh, unique character in Jenny, who's the who we're going to meet here. 
Um, give us a little background of, of before, because we're going to start with in her little shop where she's mm-hmm. going to have one of her clients. But tell us a little bit about Jenny's skills. Yeah, Jenny. Jenny is a curious psychic. Um, I mean, she's a psychic, psychic first, right, first of right. all. But she's a curious one because a she reads feet. Uh, she makes people take off their socks, their shoes, and puts their feet in her lap and, and reads them instead of hands or tea leaves. And she also – she struggles with her gift of seeing things. Often it's very dark things she she can see in the future. And she's always torn between telling people, giving them advice, uh, and and holding back and, and not telling them what she sees. Also, she's never really sure when – her gift will work and when not. So she can't ever really be certain in any given session that anything will happen. And then she makes stuff up, which is, of course, also kind of an ethical conundrum. Right. Good. Let's uh, visit her in her shop. Mm-hmm. Same thing starts up. The first customer who stayed was also a man, younger, though not young. He wore a flannel shirt and a white cowboy hat called Jenny Ma'am, and pulled off his boot without a second of hesitation. She's not sure, he said, as though this explained why he'd come. You want her to be? Jenny asked. She'd chosen a thin sweater to wear with a nice neckline, a soft bra that outlined her breasts. She wore jeans and simple mules. She didn't want to read other people's lives with bare feet. Her red hair she wore open, and the simple outfit was designed to put customers at ease. In L.A., she'd worn more colors, more makeup. L.A. was fickle. Here, the only hint at what she did were turquoise earrings and a matching necklace. Everything else was a matter of lighting. I'll marry her if she is, he said. But you don't want to. I don't? Jenny smiled put his right foot in her lap with care, not tenderness. It was a white foot with dirty nails, a steady foot with a good enough arch, a bit rigid, though. She looked at and felt it. She noticed the very dark hairs growing on the man's toes. She's not for you, she said after a few minutes, and she's not pregnant, but if you go back to her, she will be, soon. She exhaled. What does your wife know about this? She doesn't yet, right? But she's on to you. This is the first time you strayed. You like your wife better, but... She stopped. There seemed to be a knot in her thoughts, as though the foot in front of her had produced it. She's older. No, no, but she is... She let go of the man's foot. It fell to the floor like a dropped cup, only it didn't shatter. He didn't seem to mind. His eyes hung on Jenny. You must leave her, she said, before she could stop herself. Why? She's my wife, the man said. So I should go with... Just leave. Leave your family. You're living in a trailer next to your parents' house. Leave. Go. Just get out of there. Get out of this town. Now you're talking crazy. The man laughed. He was 39, maybe. 38. He put on his boot and took the agreed-upon twenty from a stitched leather wallet. She's my wife. 
You would have left her for your girlfriend. Yeah, but she's no good, right? She's not pregnant. She's not in your future. Thanks, ma'am, he said, and his grin was not so different now from that of her first visitor. We grow green chili. It's the family tradition. We're a great family. I'm needed. Jenny nodded. The man stood up, waited for a last word from her, and she forced herself to say, You take care now, and then failed to see him walk out to the parking lot, failed to listen to his truck's mangled exhaust pipe. What she saw was his wife in his older brother's bed, and the child she would soon carry, and she saw the man's path forking, and also knew that he would take the one that would lead him back to his family in some future event that felt like bile shooting up her throat. And she opened her eyes wide to let her surroundings convince her that she was still in her office, and only when she stopped did she notice she'd been crying. She didn't have another customer that day. Okay. As you wrote that, did this just come to you? Were you sitting in the office with her? Was a foot in your her, her lap, or were you watching her? Was... You being, were you being her? Um, I guess to a certain extent, but also, but also very much not. Um, I grew up in a very superstitious family, so hand readings, card readings, all that is is wasn't the norm. I mean, it wasn't like that people sat around cards or tea leaves every day, but it was just a given that those things existed and that those that the future was something you could divine, you could have access to if you wanted. And and I always was fascinated by that and the burden that comes with it. And And I was always more interested in when it doesn't really work or when you see something that you might not might not want to divulge. Mm-hmm. And so um I liked her sitting there and being in a very strange place, a place that's not really home for her, but being entrusted with secrets she doesn't really want to have. She doesn't really want to share. In. She doesn't want to have them to know them, but she really can't stop that. Exactly. And she she also, at first, she really tries hard not to intervene and just let people be people and their futures are their futures. And she's really trying hard not to get involved because she had a bad experience in L.A. where a woman, she advised, did something very violent later on and she's not sure if she caused it or if she just foresaw what would happen and so she she knows to stay out of these things. But then because it's a small town and she wants to get on the good side of people, wants to become part of this town to a certain degree, um, she convinces herself that she needs to intervene. And that's when things go terribly wrong. Right. Of course, what she sees is this, as you describe at the end, you know, you almost could have stopped it when the man left. But the fact that we hear, we re- under- read what she saw, which was pretty cut and dried. This is what's going to happen. If he takes that fork in the road, this mm-hmm. is what will happen. But the point is, is there's a fork in the road. So did she see the other side too? I don't think she believes in the other side. 
I think she's she's very much certain that the man will not pay attention to she's the fork. Fatalist. Hmm? Fatalistic. No, I think just open-eyed. Sometimes you just know. Um, yeah. Sometimes you. you Sometimes you advise people, and as a teacher, you advise people a lot um, on all kinds of things. And, and sometimes you, you give people a choice. And I don't read the future, so it's not something like life or death or anything. You are going to become a great novelist. <laughs> <laughs> you are not going to become a great novelist. If you yes. go this route. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if you take my classes, then you become a great novelist. Um, if you stop going, then then of course not. Well, there's a there's an interesting prediction. <laughs> yeah. But um, and you sometimes just see that 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 what's going on in people's minds that that they're being pulled to one or the other decision, and from the way they answer, from the way they behave, you know that whatever you deem is kind of the more daring decision where the one with more consequences for which you might have to work harder, um, that they see it but also not really see it um, or feel that other forces like family, friends, a wife, a husband might pull them the other way and they just don't see a way of, of struggling free of that. It's kind of like the people in Flint, Michigan, who are stuck in a horrible situation where you and I probably, since we're used to changing where we have and have the wherewithal to do so, would move. And yeah. they don't. No. And and some people, yeah, they can't afford to move. Um, they don't have the means or it would take them so much hardship to try to build a new life somewhere else that they try to work around the things that happen, any kind of catastrophe. Here's an entirely different kind of question. You, I'm going to compare and contrast for you now. You're two okay. different. Um, the populations in New Mexico in the in the college, and the populations in Sonoma State. Have you been along here enough here long enough to compare the two? Are they similar? Are they quite different? I'd, we like to, of course. We're Californians. We always assume that it's <laughs> going to be different, right? Um. Different, yes. I think um, my students in New Mexico, many of them were first time – I mean they were the first in their families to go to college. Mm -hmm. um, they came from – often from very poor towns, often were homeschooled. Um, and, and for them – and that might seem a little assuming, but, but – um, ENMU, Eastern New Mexico University, was really a lifeline uh, because there is really nothing around Portales. Right. And so that college was a little bit of a portal to higher education, to a more open world, to at least sort of seeing beyond New Mexico and seeing beyond one's environment. Mm. Here I think people have more of a perspective. But on the other hand, what I've seen now in my classes is that all of them really love post-apocalyptic novels mm -hmm. and stories. Is that because of the age? No, I think it's really the outlook current students have mm -hmm. on what's to happen in our country, in the world. 
that they do feel any kind of apocalypse, be that zombies or a nuclear apocalypse or really anything, will happen. That that's pretty much a foregone conclusion. Uh, they will see that in their lifetime. And they really feel that way, that this is not something like if that might happen, but when exactly is it going to happen? And how are we going to react to that? And many of my students read these types of tales as how-to manuals. What are we going to do after the apocalypse? And it's kind of a strange thing because on the one hand, it seems very doom and gloom and, oh my God, the world is coming to an end. But there's also this very bizarre and strange sense of hope that there will be actually an after. And they'll be part of it. And they'll be part of it. They might be part of it. Well, they're, they gonna, they're the protagonist, right? Isn't exactly. Right. And and so they're 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 playing this through, and 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 it's a I think a very important thing for them to do, to to reassure themselves that we're prepared for that. Uh, we are thinking about this. I mean, we in what sense? Uh, we as as the people who are now eighteen, nineteen, and might live through that apocalypse. So, and, and I think really when you look at our society right now, the level of anxiety is, is really, really high. People are afraid of pretty much everything. Um, my wife and I are right now looking for a place to rent or buy. And, and often I talk to people, well, where do you live? Like what's the area there mm -hmm. just to get the lay of the land? And usually the second or third thing they mention is it's safe. Mm -hmm. And it's a strange thing to me because, yeah, I know there's crime in certain areas and all that. But when did people become so insecure, so anxious that that's the first thing on their mind, that their house is somewhere safe? Uh, to me, very strange. When I grew up, nobody said that. They would say, oh, it's near a forest or it's by the park or it's in a good school district. But now more and more often it's the safe thing. And people feel, I think, in general, very, very unsafe. And I don't think that it's actually based really on something very real. Um, Except being told every day that, you know, what the latest thing to wor worry about is on all the media. Yeah, of course. And and we are, of course, living in an earthquake area and all that. But no, it's it's the anxiety level goes up. And I think a lot of people are worried about what's going to happen and and how we're going to survive, how we're going to pull out. And I think it's it's reasonable because our chances sort of the, over the long haul, the next few hundred years or so, don't look very rosy at all. Um, if we go down the road we have been going down, it is going to end. And um, and so I think right now my my students are really burdened with this knowledge that this is what's going to happen to an overpopulated, uh, heavily polluted planet, and that's coming out in their own fiction. Right. Now, would you uh, – the, the quote I had you was that you were the modern German Gothic novelist, right? Something like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it, would you put this book in that category? Because if, depending on how you're looking at it, 
you know, going to the Wikipedia description of what is a gothic novel and then what is a feminist gothic novel and then what is a, a female-centered gothic novel, et cetera. It has all, it ticks off all those little blanks. Yeah, no, I, I do think it's a, it's a gothic novel, definitely. It's, of course, not a German gothic novel no. anymore, but it's definitely a gothic novel. And would your have you have you had feedback from your students uh, who like the apocalyptic future? Is this apocalyptic enough for them? I don't think too many of them have read it yet. Ah. Uh, it's just you know what I'm off. saying. You're basically where the the idea of the Gothic novel is that the the architecture, the surroundings are what define you know the setting, and you certainly have the surroundings define the setting here. Yeah, and I, I just taught a class on Gothic literature, and my students were very much into it. They they really loved reading Gothic literature. Um, so, so yeah, and and um, I'm I'm open to all kinds of genres people want to write in, and I th hope and think they appreciate that. Okay, well, let's see who should we meet next. I know. How about if we meet J.D. Hart? <laughs> okay, just briefly, not Let's not too him. not too in depth, but uh, he's going to be an important character later on. Okay. Every day, a roundtable of middle-aged and beyond men congregated here, and she felt their gazes clinging to her dress like goat heads, while the barista, the owner's son, walked flat-footed to the refrigerator to retrieve the two percent milk for her latte. Who are they? she asked the kid, bestowing a smile on him she hoped was inviting and disarming enough for him to lower his voice and lean toward her for an answer. He followed her train of thought and said, J.D. Hart, he owns this building and the others on the square, and the bank, of course. He stopped for a second, then added, You don't get anything here if he doesn't want you to. Sugar-free vanilla, he asked in a slightly louder voice. She nodded, waited several beats before glancing back at the table, and she knew immediately who Hart was. He wasn't the most imposing man, probably not much taller than herself, and he wasn't the loudest one either. But all the other men's faces pointed like bright red arrows at his. Jenny could feel the discomfort they felt. They were on their guard, and they chose their words carefully. He was the only man at the table who seemed relaxed and to be enjoying himself, the only one whose laughter went on for too long. His receding hair was a touch wavy, gray, and he wore a Tom Selleck mustache. He had been young in the seventies, now his belly made him sit back from the table. He wore a flannel shirt a large belt buckle in silver and gold. His jeans were none too clean, and while she was still studying him, he looked over without a smile. He just stared, then finally nodded. Over coffee, she read magazines she'd recently subscribed to, Entertainment Weekly, Yoga, Granta, Harper's, Harper's Bazaar, Art News, Juxtapause, L. She didn't like them all, but without them she felt she was dying. Carosa had a newspaper with twelve pages daily, and most of the content was religious, right-wing, or plain drivel. None of it was grammatical. The Albuquerque paper was not available. The New York Times did not deliver. 
The Internet was no alternative for Jenny. She needed coffee stains. She read papers and magazines three times a day, after breakfast, for lunch, and later maybe in the bathroom. She got a lot of use out of one paper. He didn't come to her table that day. J.D. Hart left without her noticing. Only after the men filed out of the coffee shop did she catch one last glance of his pot-bellied, very erect figure. He could have been Hollywood 30 years ago. Okay, it's time for a break. You have been listening to a gothic Valentine's Day version of Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guest is Sonoma State's newest professor of creative writing, Stefan Kiesbu, sharing readings from his latest novel, The Staked Plains, which artfully shows why he earned the title of the inventor of the modern German Gothic novel. All right. What you've done is scattered a little clues in that part we just read, mm -hmm. because she says this time he didn't come over to her, which means, of course, there is a next time. Yes. How much do we want to let our listeners know about that? Oh, we can let them know a little bit. Okay. Um, J.D. Hart becomes very much Jenny's obsession, and she's fully aware that he is a very strange target for that affection, and she loathes herself for even considering him. But at the same time, she really falls very hard for him and even tries to be with him. And... Um, He's not a very nice man, to say the least. He's a very ruthless, very cold, very selfish man. And he rules over Carosa. It's really his fiefdom, and, and he reigns supreme in that little town. Right. Almost like the, you know, the prince of the place. Yeah, and, and he's... Really, like in the old westerns, this this cattle oh, the baron, cattle baron right. yeah, yeah, like who has the say and who pays the sheriff and knows everyone in and town, and who's quietly buying up all the uh, empty homesteads. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Chasing off the people? Well, no, maybe not, but not certainly discouraging them from leaving. Yeah, right. Exactly. Now let's talk about her husband, who is the man at the university, the local college. I think you've mm -hmm. got it called, not university. Um, what's he like? How, I know how she sees him because that's at the point of view of the book. But what? How do you see him? Well, he's he's well-meaning. He is um, he's a very very enthusiastic guy, and he's really very much into his job. Loves his job. He's a he's an archaeologist, and of course, in that area, it's a it's a it's heaven on earth for for a certain type of archaeologist, and and he really loves teaching. He loves college. He loves his research, but he's also a little a little blind to the needs of Jenny. A little too much into himself, and so while he tries to be a good guy and he tries to be a good husband, he's far from it and just doesn't have enough space in his mind to consider other people fully, to listen to them, to make himself available. He's very limited in that. And while he doesn't 
want to do stupid things or want to doesn't want to be abrasive or thoughtless. He's exactly that at times. His schedule is much more tightly controlled than hers. He's got fewer hours to spend with her, and he's got an agenda for when they get together, which usually involves sex. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think the sex they have is, is a very good example because he's he's just – He's like a big puppy dog. He he wants to make love. And of course, he doesn't consider that she might actually want something else entirely. And he just takes what he thinks he should get. And, and when it's over, he's very happy and then does his own thing again and, and very much lives in only his own world. Mm -hmm. So he's this benevolent but not very likable stranger to her. Right. That's a good description. Yeah. The, one of the interesting things that comes up over and over again, chapter after chapter, and I wonder if you teach this in your classes, is the olfactory presence of clues, if you will, of what someone may have a hint of or what someone may get, you know, almost like opening a, a door and then having, you know, smelling the other side of it and it feels it's all full of flowers or it's all full of cow shit or it's also full of whatever's on the other side of that door. And you you know somewhere later on they're going to look through that and see what's there. <laughs> um, I think that has more to do with my obsession with place. I, I never knew that really or I never thought about that myself until a friend of mine pointed that out to me a while ago that – that everything I write is really more a study in plays than anything else. Um, and, and I thought about that really hard and, and had to say, yeah, okay, A, it was true, but B, also it's, I, I believe and in and that I teach and, and tell my students a lot that a story only makes sense and becomes fully meaningful in a specific setting. So um, a neglected child being duct-taped and shoved into a closet is one story in Minnesota, in a small town in Minnesota, let's say Mankato, Minnesota, but it's an entirely different story in Manhattan, is an entirely different story in Tampa, Florida, is an entirely different story in Portales, New Mexico. Or Carosa. Yes, or Carosa. So so it's not always just what happens, but much more so where it happens to find out what it actually means, what flavor it has, what how people come to that point in their lives to do something so desperate. It's interesting. One of the things that you notice about the, shall we say, the the, the evil that comes to town is uh, identified by out-of-state license plates. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes, but also, of course, Jenny has an out-of-state license plate. Yeah, yeah, she does. So the locals might put her in the same group. And, and they do. And, and they, do. they very much do. The first, and one of the first encounters she has in her little office is with a old 
woman who works for the Baptist Children's Home in town, and she tells Jenny very bluntly that they're going to try and run her out of town, that she's not welcome there, and that her specific gift is not something they look kindly upon. And and so yes, definitely. All but but of course she is trying to make a go there. She's trying to become somebody with a New Mexico license plate. Whereas the other cars that show up in town, um, they don't want anything in town. They just want to go in there, do something very sinister, and then get the hell out of there again. So in that sense, she's different, but she's greeted, as you say, with the same kind of suspicion. Mm -hmm. Actually, she's labeled as being part of the devil's work, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. But it's also drought time, so many people hope that she does a little bit more than just reading the future. She can find – she's a dowser and can find water. Exactly. Right. Well, the interesting thing is if she does find water, who owns it? Because we're back to the man buying up all the plots of land around. So, Yeah, the local farmers, of course, and in particular Helen, another character who becomes strangely close with, with Jenny, um, hopes, of course, that Jenny will, get, will be able to get to the water before they have to sell their farm. Um, but it's a, it's a race against the clock there. Um, because, as you said earlier, the cattle is dying, and um, and it's 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 really high noon there. Um, either they get to the water quickly, or they're going to be driven off their land. And when you say high noon, do you mean it in the sense of uh, that the sun is in the you know apex, or or in the sense of the old western with uh, oh very much the old western, the old western. thing yeah, oh yes if you oh yes yeah you said what you called and we just read he could have been hollywood 30 years ago he still is hollywood he still is the john wayne type standing there with his yeah only now he looks a little and... bit more decrepit <laughs> <laughs> well remember john wayne had a, a toupee and a, and a corset on so you know there were other things going on at the time right yeah right yeah. We're going to get a new dog, okay? Okay. All right. So Carl's her husband, and uh, she's come home and invited him for a walk. Exactly. In the evening, they walked through the lettered streets, despite a steady wind that made them spit out dust and grit. The small houses, white, beige, or tin, the yards filled with leftovers of leftovers, cars that would never run again and not provide the right parts. Toys that had been broken and forgotten. Trash made to look like antique ornaments. Whole yards were filled with painstakingly arranged debris. In front of a tan house with a broken door, a shepherd mix was chained to the bumper of a Chevy celebrity missing its wheels. He jumped at them, tearing himself violently off the ground. It was still in the high 90s and the front yard didn't provide any shaded spots. The dog's hips seemed misshapen. Carl stopped, his eyes very clear and yet without readable expression. He stood and watched the dog tear at his chain. After a few minutes, a man in a John Deere t-shirt appeared in the doorway and watched them watching his dog. 
The shepherd's body seemed to curl up in a difficult dance routine. His body writhed. The man closed the screen behind him. You ain't Mexican, he said. Carl didn't answer. His demeanor didn't change. That dog knows Mexicans. How much for the dog? asked Carl. He'll bark. He'll go nuts. Nothing like what he did just now. How much? The man stepped down, watched the skies for a moment, then spit on the ground. You got a cigarette? Carl shook his head. My daddy, he put him in a potato sack, beat him up good, used my granddaddy's cane. The first thing that dog saw when daddy opened the bag was a Mexican. Daddy made sure of that. That dog remembers it real well, too. Had him for two years now. How much? Jenny didn't want a third dog. Jenny didn't want a Mexican hating shepherd. She already hated that panting and miserable creature. And yet she kept quiet. She was hurting when she looked at Carl's face. No stone could have been smoother than his face in that moment. And she grabbed her wallet and handed Carl all she had, and it was enough to get the dog and a dirty black leash. The dog didn't make a sound when Carl pulled him away from his home. Stunned, he let himself be dragged off. As I read that again, and I heard you read it on the stage, it's it, it's a poem. <laughs> each, each sentence could be a, a line, you know, one above the other rather than one after the other. And you almost need to make sure that that period is a little bigger than usual so people stop and pause a second. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a very it's amazing how you put the words together to create a horrible scene. Yeah, the the dog situation in Kirosa is is a bad one and a lot of stray dogs um people come there's a there's an air force base nearby there's the college and people buy dogs and or bring their dogs and then when they leave They just leave them there mm -hmm. to fend for themselves. And um, every one of my friends has a took a stray dog in. Everybody who's left Portal is left with at least one dog. Well, apparently they don't just leave dogs. This isn't that long. She first saw him one morning scaling the cinder block wall and leaving their yard. The dogs made no noise, but two followed the apparition with mild curiosity, their noses doled from cow dung and ethanol. Not even Diesel, and Diesel is the new dog, they named him that, got up to bark. When she looked toward the chain-link gate, a small body flew by, and the only thing she could make out was a faded Superman shirt. He was skinny. That much was immediately apparent even though she only saw half of him the next time, an early morning ten days later, when, Nos when nausea and itching had awakened her and she let out the dogs early. It was 4.30, and the sky only just turning lighter, and the yard light came on, and he peered out from the doghouse Carl had built to give Shibuya a hiding place when Diesel got too rambunctious. 
She opened the screen door and he took off, just like the first time. He wore stained shorts and the same Superman shirt. He couldn't be much older than six or seven. Yeah, and that's Dog Boy. Um, or Hog. Hog, as he calls himself. Exactly. And he makes an appearance there and she starts feeding him. and With the dogs. He with the, with dogs. the dogs. And that drinks yeah. out of the dog's dish. Yeah, yeah. And and he, refuse, <laughs> he refuses anything but lunch meat or or fruit he loves he loves fruit but um no candy or anything and he doesn't like any other drink than water so he's very he's very happy with a with a dog bowl and sleep. he doesn't like the kibble no no he doesn't eat the kibble <laughs> <laughs> no so were there feral kids in new mexico when you were there or is this just uh some gothic uh, throwback along with the wild dogs, which of course it could have been wild wolves outside I've, the castle, right? I've been obsessed for a long time with wild children, with neglected children, with children who are kept in terrible conditions and who don't have a chance really to grow up and and be socialized, grow up in a family. Um and and while I never spotted one in myself in New Mexico, there there's so much poverty in the state that a lot of people sell off their children to children's homes uh, because they can't care for them. Mm-hmm. And um, when you drive around N- New Mexico and and you see just how people live, um, um, it's almost a logical next. Step and and to me it made all the sense in the world to to show that side too of of very neglected kids a lost boy hmm? a lost boy yeah a lost yeah. boy yes who didn't go to Neverland though no, he's no, still he running around the scrub yep one of the things that I thought was really interesting is you brought up the uh, sixty one churches in mm-hmm. sixty two yeah. sixty two mm-hmm. uh, and there is a fundamentalist Christian you know, born-again Christian perspective from several of the characters. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem to me that it ever coalesces as a, a group of them. In other words, they, they don't arrive, they don't appear with, you know, blazing torches at any time in the book, not to give it away. <laughs> but <laughs> no, you know what yeah. I mean? There's no, there's no uh, um, crowd mentality among them. Mm-hmm. They're acting as individuals separated by however many miles there are mm-hmm. between them and their neighbors. Yeah, they, they they are split up. I, I never really – okay, full disclosure, I grew up in a small town um, at my first few years, a small town in in northern Germany which had three churches for mm-hmm. right. about 12,000. Probably Lutheran and what? Catholic. Catholic. Yeah, and for 12,000 people. And when you said – I go to church. It was that one church or that other or church. Or the other one, right? <laughs> and and here it's it's all entirely split up, and everybody has a congregation of twenty, fifty, a hundred, yeah. thirteen. Um, so it's it's much more capitalist in that sense that that people are vying for souls. Um, but it also means that that people don't come together and do things together because they really d- 
differentiate themselves from others, and they're, they're, they're really these barriers. No, I'm, I'm this church and not that other church over there. So there's not a big sense of community. Once in a while, there's a dinner at a church, like a turkey dinner, and then other people come too. But but mostly they, they keep really to their own congregation and to themselves and try to... Extended family. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that had impact, of course, on your story. So that, for, let me, I'm going to try to put this in a neutral way so that I don't give okay. away anything. Okay. But let's say uh, the Brown family who believes a certain thing and goes to a certain small church with, you know, 50 people in it. And then they think one way about this fortune teller that's come to town. But the Green family who goes to another small church has an entirely different, well, not entirely different, but dramatically enough so for the book different. Mm -hmm. perspective about it. One will go to her and ask advice. The other one will go to her and ask advice and then curse her as she does so. Another will stay far, far, far away from her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... um, Well, she... (sighs) Is she a polarizing figure? Yeah, she is polarizing, but, but, but she's, of course, just by virtue of being there and having this parlor, she's also a kind of celebrity. So not in a good sense, uh, more an infamous person. And, um, I mean, people, people still want, people still want her to tell the future, to, make predictions about what's going to happen. So so it's like like making a pact with the devil. You know the devil is no good, but if you need him well, then... You've got to go to the crossroads. Well, yeah, you, you, you sell your soul for a while and hope you're going to get it back at some point. So you're going to outsmart him, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Or kill the devil at some point. Or put up the, the cross or the Bible or something as a exactly. protection. Exactly. Exactly. Hoping for redemption. Now, one of the other things, of course, against her is the fact that she comes from California with a big C. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a reaction to people when they found out where you had been teaching before you went to New Mexico? Mm, No, 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 I didn't. It's a much more university town than that. No, that, that, that was actually never part of any, any discussion. And, uh, since I, since I have the German accent, um, people always associate me much, much more with Germany than anything else, even though I haven't been living there in a long while, Mm -hmm. but I opened the door and the first thing they asked me is where I'm from. Ah. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners about, um, the process of writing? How it works for you. Obviously, you've written a number of novels, so mm-hmm. not be as, you know, as labor intensive as some people are made to believe. But it's still hard work. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely hard work, and I think people usually are pretty much in the dark about how much discipline it actually takes to finish any given writing project, because usually. Like everything that we know about the world, we know from television and the movies, uh, everything I know about bloodied corpses and all that, I, I know from television <laughs> and television series, not not any true crime uh, television. And, uh, and so the, the writers that appear on television and in the movies are usually 
They usually have writer's block first thing right. you see them, right. and then at the end they lock themselves in a dark room, and five minutes later they come out and have this three hundred page masterpiece, and everybody is just flattened by and how an brilliant it is. With the cigarette butts, exactly, right. and and empty whiskey bottles yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And but but I don't think people realize that like everything, um, like painting or really good yard work or being a really good gardener it takes just a lot of time and training and the first drafts and discarded drafts and whole projects turning over the the garden bit yeah 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 and and yeah and you're ruining trees you buy beautiful fruit trees and the next season they're all gone and you can't figure out why because you did everything right you think except for that frost except for that frost and you didn't cover the roots at all right. and didn't do anything there. Um, yeah, and so so it's it's really labor-intensive. And you have to be very almost brutal and arrogant about it. So when your friends want to go out with you or your children – I don't have any children, so that, that, that at least. But but your children want to play or your relatives want to come. Or your wife wants to play, you have to say, yeah. Yeah, you have to say no and uh, lock yourself in your little room and, um, and, and be very adamant about it that this is your time. And that's where many put writing careers go astray. Um, because people just don't know how to make that time. Did you write this as a novel, or is it? Uh, were there shorter pieces that inspired a longer work, or what happened? No, I did write this as, as a novel. Um, so you kind of had a knew where it was going. Yes, I had a very vague idea of where this was going, but I hadn't planned it out. There are two, there are two writers, the plotters and the pantsers, right, right. and I'm a pantser, and, and I have no idea what really happens when I start out. I have sort of a very vague sort of picture of what might happen towards the end, but um, – that often actually changes, and I have to let go of whatever notion that was. But, but I'm I'm always kind of open to weird things happening that I never saw coming. Do you take your shoes off to predict the future of where the novel will go? I might, but I won't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not too many secrets. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our Gothic Valentine's Day version of Word by Word Conversation with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. I'm your host, Gil Manser. My studio engineer is Jesse Fancushin. Theme music composer is Bill Conti. KRCB program director is Sean Knight, and radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. Today's guest was Stefan Kiesbo, Sonoma State's newest professor of creative writing, sharing readings from his latest novel, The Staked Plains. On our next Word by Word show, which would be broadcast from 4 to 5 the afternoon of Sunday, March 13, our guests will be a few of the screenwriters and directors from the 9th Annual Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival. When, until then, I wish you happy.
writing songs of love, but not for me. A lucky star's above, but not for me. With love to lead the way, I found more clouds of gray than any Russian play could guarantee. I was a fool to fall and get that way. I hope alas, and also like a day. Although I can't dismiss the memory of his kiss.